We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the many different kinds of literature that you will incorporate in within your scriptures. We thank you for this book, which can be difficult to understand sometimes, but which ultimately points toward you and the tremendous gift that you have given us in your Son. We also thank you for the many blessings that you have given us to enjoy in this temporary life as we look forward to eternity with you. We ask that you would be with us this evening. Help us to understand this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes, Jesus Christ, end of all living. And when I say end of all living, I mean, by end, I mean the goal, the objective, the uh, end point towards which all creation is moving. The Hebrew title of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet. It's uh, rendered as the preacher in some translations, in many English translations. The word refers to one who assembles. Um, it's somewhat ambiguous as to what he assembles. Does he assemble the people to teach them, or does he assemble or, or compile proverbs or sayings? It could be both. The title Ecclesiastes in our English translations comes from the Greek translation of the word Kohelet in the Septuagint. The Greek word is related to the word Ecclesia meaning assembly or congregation or church. So the Ecclesiastes is, is the preacher, the one who assembles the people for, for teaching. The flight, facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and travel tips. Ecclesiastes 1.1 attributes the book to the son of David came in Jerusalem. So the best candidate for this description is David's son Solomon. Now some people think that it wasn't Solomon, it was a later descendant of David, but I do think it was Solomon. Some people don't even think it was a descendant of David at all. I think that was just a persona that the, that the author assumed took on. Though some contest Solomon's authorship, thinking that Ecclesiastes was written during the post-exilic period, after Solomon's time, the internal evidence in the book points to him. The book also corresponds to his life as king and rule as a writer. The book of Ecclesiastes was most likely written toward the end of Solomon's reign, around 940 BC, as he looked back to reflect on the meaning of life and war readers about wrong choices. And he certainly didn't make plenty of those. So, once again, that's, that's why I took these three books in the order that I did. I think that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon when he was young, he wrote Proverbs when he was middle-aged, and he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, when he was elderly. One of the big questions of life, and not the biggest question, is why am I here? Solomon, in all his wisdom, asked that as well. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as a, as a journal of his search for life's meaning and purpose. Here you'll find his reflections on experience, honest and open, about both the ups and downs of life. The 
itinerary or outline of the book. First, we read about Solomon's search in chapters 1 through 4, Solomon's sayings in chapters 5 through 10, and Solomon's solution in chapters 11 through 12. Even though you won't uh, see specific references to the Messiah in Ecclesiastes, you'll see redemption's necessity in bold relief. You'll see why we need salvation. Solomon was weary with the pursuit of meaning. He spoke of, of uh, the fatigue, vanity of the of life under the sun, a phrase that, that recurs 29 times in the book. And that's why when, when people read the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes they, at first, they say, well, this is so negative, it's so uh, pessimistic. And they might even say, well, it's, it's, it's not orthodox, it's, it's, it flies in the face of what the Bible says elsewhere. Well, the reason for that is because Solomon began his search under the sun. In other words, he's just looking at life and at the world from a totally secular perspective. He's not taking into account God or eternity or anything like that. And when you look at life as in a totally secular way, you have to admit it is pretty bleak. It is pretty depressing. So that's what's going on with under the sun. And I'll talk more about that later. Life under the sun, according to Solomon, was toilsome, difficult, and meaningless. That's the natural result of focusing on the horizontal, the world around all around you with all of its challenges, its mysteries, its philosophies, and not on the vertical, that is, God and his word and his ways. So later on in the book, Solomon brings those things into account. But that's the dark before the dawn, and it provides the, the, needed, the needed contrast to life under the sun. We need to bring God into the equation to have right perspective, the right perspective of Jesus Christ. Without him, life is vanity, empty and futile. With him, life is full of purpose. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. As Solomon has covered all the riches and power in the world, can't bring true satisfaction. Medical science can add years to your life, but only Jesus can add life to your years. The book of Ecclesiastes is an illuminating commentary on the life of King Solomon. Solomon started off as a mighty king around 970 BC, bringing the nation of Israel to its wealthiest and strongest point. However, made content and complacent by his, his name and fortune, his fame and fortune, Solomon began to disobey God by pursuing the empty things described in Ecclesiastes. It was probably toward the end of his life that he realized he had chased after the wrong things. And he should have spent his time getting to know God more, growing in God's wisdom, even into his later years. The travel tips, the things that we can learn from this book. First of all, fear God. 
Here refers to reverential awe that produces loving and humble submission to the Holy God. Because he is your loving father, you, want to, you don't want to disappoint him. Obey God. Obedience follows fear. So we obey God. Now, the obedience to God looks a little bit different under the New Covenant than under the Old Covenant. But still, we have the law of Christ. We obey Christ. Not because uh, we want to earn salvation, but we do it as a grateful response to the mercy and the kindness that He has shown us and given us the gift of salvation. Enthusiasm is a lot easier than obedience. You might get worked up about Jesus and a worship experience, but unless you keep His commandments, you're missing the point. And finally, prepare to give an account. One day you will stand before God and give an account for your life. Life is a God-given opportunity. Life without God is empty, and death without God is a calamity. So, if there's any one thing that we associate with one of Ecclesiastes, it's vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the creature. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes opens with a motto, a dramatic statement, that brands reality as utterly absurd, transitory, and futile. The most prominent theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity. The Hebrew word is havel. This term occurs 38 times in the book. The literal sense of havel is labor, wrath. In his abstract uses, in Ecclesiastes, it refers to anything that is superficial, ephemeral, unsubstantial, incomprehensible, enigmatic, inconsistent, or contradictory. So it has quite a wide range of meaning. I talked about this when I talked about the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. The Hebrew literary form X of X indicates the superlative and intensifies an idea. For example, the Holy of Holies is the most holy place. The King of Kings is the greatest king. And the Song of Songs is the best of songs. The vanity and meaninglessness in this book, in this book's motto, is intense and all-encompassing. Everything is utterly meaningless. And Solomon says, vanity of vanities. This is his way of saying the greatest vanity, the supreme meaninglessness, the ultimate absurdity. The Apostle Paul observed this same condition when he remarked where the creation was subjected to futility in Romans 8, 20. The Greek word that's used here is the very same word that is used in the Septuagint translation of Ecclesiastes 1-2. So Paul is introducing that same concept. Throughout the course of Ecclesiastes, 
10 things are described as vanity. Kohelet makes this charge against all the obvious things that we too would recognize as meaningless. More interestingly though, he turns his critical gaze upon things that might seem less obviously empty or wrong to us. What is even more amazing is how Kohelet's charge extends even to the things we would call good. He even says that they are meaningless. They are vanity. Is everything meaningless? The author is in no hurry to answer. He wants us to look very closely at the world we can see and the answers it seems to give before he will do more than drop hints of his own standpoint. So that's what, what brings us to that phrase under the sun. But what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? First of these subtle hints, however, comes immediately in the phrase under the sun. This expression is used 29 times in Ecclesiastes. The similar expression under heaven, meaning under the sky, is used an additional three times. So he also uses that expression. The phrase under the sun means down here on earth. It refers to various aspects of human life in the world. Life within those mundane limits which are the same for all men. Whether you're rich or poor, young or old, whether you're a wise, a wise man or a fool. Kohelet is looking only at created temporal existence. He is by definition leaving out consideration for the moment of, of God and what is eternal. So he's just looking at things under the sun. So after we've sucked dry all the immediate delight, joy, or pleasure of something, what is left over? What endures? What will remain continuing to continually feed the hunger of our lives for satisfaction? Is there anything that will administer continually to my need? That highest good which, if I find it, I do not need to look any further. Is there a key to continual pleasure, to delight and joy in this life? Kohalat raises the pertinent question, this pertinent question right at the beginning. It defines the search on which this book will take us. So he's going to begin his search, his survey, his, his uh, contemplation, his meditation on the purpose and meaning of life under the suns where he begins that search. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. So another word that's important to an understanding of Ecclesiastes is the Hebrew word yotron. It's a word that's used ten times in the book. It's translated as gaining, profit, advantage. Kohelet wants to know if under the sun human activity can produce a net profit, a yotron. And that provides satisfaction or ultimate advantage that is suitable compensation for all the effort that has been expended. So we have to we have to put forth effort to get this profit or advantage, so is it worth it? The, the counting term neutron refers to the net gain of an investment that justifies the risking of one's resources. 
So he's looking for something that's worth putting his effort into. He's wondering if there's any such thing. Kohala does find a measure of enjoyment. He does find things in life that are enjoyable. But he's not looking for just immediate, <coughs> temporary pleasure. He's seeking lasting satisfaction. So all of us can probably find in our lives something that's enjoyable, something that brings satisfaction. But is there anything that brings lasting satisfaction? But one commentary put it this way. It said he, Kohala, had found that pleasure promises more than it can produce. Its advertising agency is better than its manufacturing department. It holds out the possibility of exquisite delight, but the best it can perform is titillation. It seeks to tickle the human spirit, but it cannot probe its depths. So Solomon embarks upon this study, this search for meaning, for purpose in life. And he goes through four observations of life, trying to find out, trying to find something that will give lasting satisfaction, lasting profit, lasting advantage. So the first observation of life deals with the vanity of human wisdom. And the basic theme is that the vanity of all merely human effort and experience. Everything that we can do, everything that we can experience, turns up to be humanity. And then he gives some, a demonstration of that theme. So we'll look at more closely at those. But first of all, I said that the basic theme is the humanity of merely human effort and experience. Once again, under the sun. And that can be, things that can be enjoyed just don't, don't pay off the way that Solomon wants them to. The demonstration of that theme, first uh, he talks about the, the meaningless cycle of human life and history. Things just go on and on and on. It's the, it's the same for where people, they live, they're born, they live, they die, then the next generation is born, they live, they die. This goes on and on. And it seems to have no meaning, no purpose. Under the sun, that is. He next looks at the ultimate uselessness of human wisdom and philosophy. He thinks that, well, maybe, maybe I can find some answer in, in wisdom and philosophy in thinking about this. And he finds that too is anything. Next, he experiences the emptiness of the enjoyments of pleasure and wealth. And Solomon is the ultimate test case. If he can't find lasting meaning and purpose and, and pleasure and wealth, and nobody can. And in the midst of all the search, there is the ultimate death of even the wise. It doesn't matter if you're wise or a fool, you're going to die eventually. And then the, he looks at the, he considers the futility of leaving the fruits of hard work to undeserving heirs. A person works and works and, and accumulates all of this wealth and then he leaves it to his heirs and there's no guarantee that they will uh, make wise use of the wealth that he's accumulated. He leaves it to someone else and has no control over what they do with it. 
And then he looks at the necessity of contentment with God's providences. So he concludes that all you can do is make the best use of what God has given to you. That's his first observation of life. Then comes his second observation of life. And it involves coming to terms with the laws which govern life. A prudent attitude in view of the facts of life. What, what should be your attitude, given that life is as it is? The disappointments of earthly life. The things that you wish were different, but they aren't different. And then the utility of the self-seeking life. If you just want to accumulate wealth and experiences and things for yourself, you will find that that is futile. So let's look at the prudent attitude in view of the facts of life and death. A proper time must be recognized for each activity and experience. So this is a section of Ecclesiastes that was turning into a famous song about where everything, where the season turned, turned. There's a proper time for every, every activity, every experience of life. God is the only guarantor of abiding values. We can't come up with values on our own that are lasting or abiding. So even though he tries to conduct this search, this survey, without considering God in an attorney from time to time, he does have to bring God into the picture. And it's not avoided. God will punish the unrighteous, visiting death upon all. So even though it may seem at times like some of the unrighteous are getting away with their unrighteousness, they will eventually be punished. Man must share physical death with animals. And some Christians are shocked when they read these statements about as a man dies, so an animal dies. As an animal dies, so a man dies. But if you look at it under the sun, if you look at it from a purely secular viewpoint, there just isn't any difference that you can discern between the death of a person and the death of an animal. Under the sun, it may seem the same. Now, later on, we'll see that Solomon does bring God into the picture and acknowledge that there is a difference between the spirit of man and the spirit of an animal. Man must share physical death with animals. And then, unsure of the life of life beyond, man must make the best of his present life. So, death is going to come sooner or later, so you just have to make the best of what God has given you, what God has allowed you to enjoy. The disappointments of earthly life. Cruelty and misery make life a dubious blessing. So, at times you may experience that cruelty and misery. And even when you don't experience it yourself, you are aware of others for experiencing cruelty and misery. 
disadvantages are cited for imperialistic success, laziness, and insatiable covetousness. So obviously these things don't, don't pay off if a person is just, is just focused on materialistic success or the opposite extreme is that he's lazy and not willing to do anything. And then insatiable covetousness, the person always wants more, more, more. That also has its disadvantages. One of the things that Kohelet does note is that life's trials are better faced by partners than alone. So, one of the things that makes life enjoyable is having a partner. And then this next one, we can see this certainly in our, in our culture, political success is temporary and unstable. So when a public official is elected to office, there may be just wildly optimistic predictions of what he will accomplish and what he will do in office. And before you know it, the, uh, the ardor has cooled. <laughs> we speak of a, when a president is elected, we speak of the honeymoon period. You know, for the first few months, things seem to go very well. And you will cut them some slack, but it isn't long before the accusations and the recriminations start. And that was true in the ancient world as well. The utility of, of the self-seeking life, so just trying to get things for yourself and get material possessions and experiences. One of the things that sometimes happens is that um, People pretend that they are religious, pretend that they are doing things for God. Presenting to God false sacrifices, vain words, unkept promises is folly. You're not fooling God, certainly. Retribution overtakes oppressors and disappointment is in store for the covetous. People are always trying to get more and are bound to be disappointed at the things they don't get. People who are oppressors, sooner or later, they will get their just reward, so to speak. Thankful employment, enjoyment of God's gifts brings contentment. So as human beings, as physical and material human beings, if we are thankful and we enjoy the gifts that God gives us, that does bring contentment. And then Solomon goes on to his third observation of life. There's no satisfaction in earthly goods and treasures. You may think that the answer is having more stuff, but it never is. The inadequacy of, of attainments esteemed by the world. The world is constantly telling us, boy, if we have this thing, if we have that thing, then you'll really you'll be happy, you'll be satisfied. But we get those things and we're not. Then there's a section where, where Solomon counsels prudence in this sin corrupted, corrupted world. He tells us what the wise course of action is. 
feeling that the world and life are as they are. And then he talks about coming to terms in an imperfect world. Okay, the world isn't perfect. What do we do about it? The inadequacy of attainments esteemed by the world. Neither wealth nor large family can bring final satisfaction to the soul. In the ancient world, people were told that you have, you have these things. If you have wealth and you have a large family, you got it made. But people who did have wealth and large families found that they still weren't satisfied. Neither the wise nor the foolish attain satisfaction in their heart. So it doesn't matter whether you're a, a great philosopher or whether you're a fool, you're not going to find satisfaction under the sun, that is. Apart from God, man cannot even discern the real reason for life. So, trying to find a meaning and purpose for life under the sun without considering God in eternity is pretty much a hopeless case. Counsels of prudence in this sin-corrupted world. So, given that we live in the fallen world, what do we do about it? True values are best gauged from the perspective of sorrow and death. Some people try to avoid thinking about death by just laughing and having fun and seeking pleasure all the time. But Solomon says that before you do that, you need to consider that you are going to die. And you need to consider the role of death in your life. Cheap gaiety, dishonest gain, and shortness of temper are but pitfalls. So if you just are seeing cheap thrills all the time, if you're trying to gain material possessions dishonestly, and you're prone to throwing temper tantrums, the results are not pleasant. Wisdom is greater, a greater asset than financial wealth in coping with life. Uh, Solomon gives the example of a, of a city that's under siege, that's being attacked. And a man who is wise, even though he's poor, comes up with a plan to prevent the city from being taken. So this is an example that he gives of how it's better to be wise than to be wealthy. God is the author of both good, fortune, and ill. So ultimately, God is responsible in the sense that he allows good things or bad things to happen to us. And so, our lot in life, to the very greatest thing, is, is dependent upon what God allows to come upon us. Both self-righteousness and immorality lead to disaster. And that should go without saying that self-righteousness and 
who are also leading in disaster, with Solomon Kohelet as one thing out. Some more counsels of prudence in the sin corrupted world. Wisdom has surpassing power, but sin is universal. Wisdom is really a good thing, but given that we live in a fallen world, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Be heedless of base malice towards yourself. He talks about a person who has a servant and he learns that this servant is saying bad things about him, saying negative things about him. And Solomon counsels, you know, don't worry about it. There are always going to be people who are saying, gossiping, saying bad things about you. So don't get too worked up about it. Man's quest for wisdom cannot by itself attain profound spiritual truth. So may seek wisdom, he may consult the wise, but that by itself, under the sun, won't produce truth, spiritual truth, ultimate truth. A wicked woman is the worst of evils a man can encounter. And we saw that in, in the book of Proverbs too, as well. But all human beings, male and female, have fallen from original goodness. We are being fully aware of that. Have you been on this earth any length of time? Coming to terms with an imperfect world. The wise man respects the authority of government. And we see this in the New Testament as well, in Romans 13. The, the wise man respect, respects the authority of the government. So it makes me think of the situation where a person encounters a police officer, for example. If you don't, if you think that the police officer is not treating you fairly, it's best to take care of it in court. Uh, nothing is gained by mouthing off to them. <laughs> uh, not telling them that they are in prison to comply with their instructions. The wise man respects the authority of the government in any way that he comes into contact with it. So the, uh, when we read Romans 13, remember that Romans 13 is given to us in the context of the Roman Empire. So respecting the government and complying with the government isn't just for good government, it's for bad government as well. And so in the book of Proverbs, when it talks about not seeking evil of the king, complying with his instructions, not necessarily because the king is a nice guy, but because the king has the power to take off their head. So if you want to keep your head, it's good to comply. Divine law operates in our life despite woes and wrongs and inevitable death. So we can all certainly see that since we live in an imperfect world, a fallen world, 
that there are bound to be things that are wrong with the government that rules over us. But still, God's law operates within that. Though uh, esteemed and unpunished, the wicked will finally be judged by God. Once again, we sometimes see the wicked prospering. It's saying to get away with being defiant of God. They will eventually be judged. Injustices in this life awfully encourage shallow hedonism. So because there are injustices, sometimes people see that as, well, I got away with it, so why not do it some more? Why not just do whatever I feel like doing? And that is the the uh, approach that some take. But God's ways are inscrutable to human wisdom. We can't ever say that we have God figured out, that we know everything that he's planning to do and why he does it. God's ways are beyond human wisdom. And then Solomon engages in a fourth observation of life. God will deal with the injustices of this life. So there are injustices because we live in a fallen world, but God will deal with them. Death is inevitable to all, so we need to make the best use of this life. To use what we are allowed to enjoy and to be content. The uncertainties of life and the baneful effects of folly. So, life is uncertain. There are uncertainties in life. But uh, life is harder when you're cool. <laughs> and then Solomon tells us how to best invest in life. What do we do with the life that we are doing? Death is inevitable to all. So we are to make the best use of this life. Death is inevitable to both the good and the evil. Moral insanity grips them all. Whether they're good or evil, they have the same result of death. Moral choice and the knowledge of life are cut off at death. So we only have a chance to make decisions about good and bad and how we are coming our lives until the time that we die. Let the godly use to the full life of eternity and blessings. So once again, the things that God has allowed us to enjoy, the, God, the things that are our portion in life, we are to use those things fully and enjoy them and appreciate them. Even to the, to the worthy, success is uncertain and lifespan is unpredictable. So we would like to think that if I obey God and do what is right and, and live a respectable life, that everything will turn out fine. But there's no guarantee, of course, that that will happen the way that you wish it would. So even to the people who are worthy, 
success is uncertain. It may not turn out the way that you wanted it to, the way that you planned. Wisdom, though unappreciated, succeeds much better than force. And once again, we think of that man who came up with a way to keep the enemy from destroying his city. We're never told what that what that way is, but we're told that he was a wise man. So wisdom is ultimately better than force. The uncertainties of life and the main vortex of folly. Life is uncertain, but as I said, it, it's a lot worse when you're a fool, when you behave foolishly. Even a little folly can ruin a man's life. Be prudent before princes. We see that with um, sometimes with young people. do something foolish that they really didn't intend to do any harm, but as a result of their carelessness, someone was killed or someone was injured seriously. So you want a little foolishness can ruin a man's life. Light provides reversals in fortune and strokes of recognition. So things might seem to be going really good now, but can turn around in a hurry. A fool is marked by his empty talk and misdirected effort. So as we, one of the expressions that we have in our society is of, uh, he's all hat and no cattle. In other words, he's, he's a, a big talker, but he never really does anything. I just thought of a, of a cartoon where this cowboy is set talking to another cowboy and he says, people who say that they can do as much at 60 as they did when they were 20, they didn't do much when they were 20. <laughs> the, the welfare of nations and of, of man, the welfare of nations and of individuals depends upon accepting responsibility. Individually and collectively are not willing to accept responsibility. The results are disastrous. And contempt of authority brings recognition. So once again, we see that we think of a person who refuses to comply with the instructions of a police officer. How best to invest a life? So, given that we can't understand life, especially life under the sun, how should we live our lives? Kindness returns with blessings to the benefactor. That's the way that this, these two verses are generally understood. I'll talk a little bit later about um, a possible um, alternative explanation of that of those verses. Man's wisdom cannot change or 
fell on God's laws. So we can't change God's plan. We can't change what, what he's doing, what he's working out on the earth. And we can't totally understand it either. But we can be confident that he knows what he's doing. The wisest course is lifelong diligence and cheerful industry. We can't be certain what the outcome of our efforts will be. But it is, to, it is best to enjoy your chosen career, work diligently out. A youth misspent in pleasure brings later retribution. So it may seem like a lot of fun to a youth to put away this time, and we'll pay for it later on. Start living for God while you're young. For affliction and civility come upon you. So, with each of the first three surveys, studies that someone does, his observations about life, he comes to a provisional conclusion before he comes to his ultimate final conclusion after that fourth. That fourth uh, observation of life. So, the first uh, conclusion that he comes to is in chapter two, first original conclusion. And his first original conclusion is. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I say is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? For the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. I'll give you some examples of that later on of the sinners trying to wealth and be given to others, the people of God. The second provisional conclusion that he comes to is in chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, 18 through 20. This is what I have observed and good. And it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. During a few days of life, God has given them, but this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life, as God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And then the third original conclusion is in chapter 8, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun, once again you see that, that expression under the sun, than to eat and drink and be glad, and joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of, life, of the life God has given them under the sun. 
So we see the expression under the sum twice in that statement. And then we come to his ultimate final conclusion in chapter 12. And I'll look more closely at that later on. Life in the light of eternity. So finally he brings God and eternity into the picture. Solomon's purpose was to teach people wisely about life. That was the whole purpose of, the, of this exercise. These incisive admonitions are of more practical value than all literature. So Solomon says, I look at this every possible way. And I've come to these conclusions. And so, once again, Solomon is the ultimate test case. Once he's done this, he says that you don't need to think about this or look into it anymore. I'll give you the answer. And then the ultimate conclusion that, that Solomon comes to, and I'll talk more about this later, put God's will first, for his judgment is final. I want to look uh, more closely at some specific verses here, just a few. Uh, I mentioned this before about verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Many interpreters have taken the casting of bread on the waters to refer to practice of charity. That's a common understanding of this verse. The final clause in verse 1, however, seems at variance with this paragraph. Because it says you will find the bread after many days. So what does that mean? If casting the bread on the waters is giving generously to charity, then why, what does it mean by you will find it after many days? So are, are you giving this all to get it back? And that sounds kind of like uh, kind of like the name it and claim it people that tell us that if you give, you need your money, then you'll get more money back for it. So, a, a strong case can be made for understanding the verse to speak of shrewd business investing in maritime commerce. Remember that, that Solomon had built a vast trade network. He was engaged in maritime commerce. He had ships going all over the world, all over the known world at that time, in this vast trade network. So according to this rendering, Bread is a metonymy. Metonymy is where one thing in a group stands for the whole group. Bread is a metonymy for the commodities of trade. By dividing the cargo into many consignments, a merchant is able to reduce the risk to the entire lot and thus endeavor to minimize the efforts, the effects of misfortune. So in other words, if you put all of your cargo in one ship, and then that ship sinks, well, you've suffered a great loss. But if you break your cargo up and put it into many ships, even if one ship sinks, you won't lose the whole cargo. So that's the idea. If this is the proper interpretation, then Kohala is indicating that wise people do not shrink from risk to apathy, but rather they venture forth courageously. Even though they cannot guarantee success, they are willing to take calculated risks 
that may well produce beneficial results with it. So yes, bad things can happen, but don't let that paralyze you. Don't just withdraw and say, well, I'm not going to do anything because it might not work out. So the, the um, I showed you earlier how um, the ESV crowns like this, the traditional way, cast your on the waters. But, I, but the uh, NIV may have gotten it right here. This is how many translate reverse. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. So when you put it together with that second part of the verse, it, it does make more sense that way. Um, in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, remember your creator in the days. This is that conclusion that he's leading up to. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. The Hebrew word for creator is very similar to the word for source and the word for grave. So there may be a, a play of words going on here. I, I point this out because you don't see this in English translation. Your cistern, your source, is used elsewhere as a metaphor for one's wife. I saw that back in Proverbs. And your pit is used elsewhere to refer to the grave. So you're making this play on words. Remember your creator, remember your wife, remember you're headed for death. That's ultimately what's going to happen to your physical life. One of the things that really impresses me about the wisdom literature in the Bible, primarily Job and Ecclesiastes, is the amount of accurate scientific information that's given to us in those books. Things that were told to us in the books of Job and in the book of Ecclesiastes are things that weren't known by mankind for centuries. We didn't discover these things for century, until centuries later. But the Bible gives us, the, the wisdom books give, give us input, accurate scientific information about the natural world. And so it's just one more evidence that we're not dealing with the ideas of man. We're dealing with the inspired word of the greater God. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. So, this verse indicates a remarkable understanding of the global circulation of the atmosphere, that there are definite global circuits of the winds of the worlds, a fact now known to modern meteorologists, but could not have been known to the ancients before the development of air sounding and measuring instruments, which have enabled them to track these great circuits. So the, the air, the wind, does move in circuits. And the diagram of the, of the prevailing winds on the earth. You'll notice that they do move north and south, but there are these circuits of air going on. Another aspect of nature that was given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. All streams run to the sea, 
but the sea is not polar. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So we have, we constantly have streams flowing into bodies of water, but they never overflow. What happens? Well, this was understood by Kohalik. Myself, this illustration focuses on the water cycle, the hydrologic cycle. Even though the rivers continually flow into the sea, the sea is never filled up because the water evaporates and falls, only to flow in the rivers again. This principle would be particularly noticeable in the Dead Sea, but is valid for all bodies of water. The Dead Sea doesn't have any outlet, so the, the, the sources of, of water keep running into the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea never overflows. So we have this cycle, this hydrologic cycle. This first outline is a remarkable hydrologic cycle. The cycle is driven by the atmospheric circulation, working with the daily circuit of the sun, and in verse 5. In verse 5, it mentions how this cycle of the, of the sun rising and setting is endless. It just keeps going on and on and on. There's a, a diagram of the hydrologic cycle. The water in the ocean evaporates, it condenses in the clouds, and then it comes down as precipitation, as rain or snow, and then it flows back into the ocean again. And this cycle was explained to us by Solomon many centuries ago. And I also want to give you some illustrations of how this book, the principles of this book, even though the book was written nearly 3,000 years ago, the, the principles are still valid and accurate today. For the one who pleases him, or to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And down through history we find examples of the, the sinner, not necessarily a, a really bad person, but just a person who isn't cognizant of God, gathering material things only to have them go to the godly. This verse contrasts two types of people. First, there is the person who is good in God's sight and who receives from him wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Second, in contrast, there is the hatak, hatak, one who misses the mark of finding God's benefits. Even though hatak is often used in the Bible to refer to a sinner, the word does not necessarily represent an especially bad person. Here, as in numerous passages in the wisdom literature, the term may indicate one who simply stumbles through life without a knowledge of God. Rather than claiming that all good people see what is good from God, and all bad people see what is bad from God, Kohala is teaching that there is not a clearly observable correlation between acts and consequences. Sometimes we do see the wicked prosper. 
Instead, God uses all humans to accomplish his inscrutable plan. At times so directing that an individual has the task of gathering and storing the wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Many Christian gatherings today are held in the expensive homes of millionaires who are not Christians. In a beautiful natural glade outside Colorado Springs, General William Palmer, owner of the of Colorado Springs and of the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, built an English-style stone castle for his British bride. She never lived in it more than a few weeks, and he himself never enjoyed that property at all. It sat empty for years. Here's a picture of the, of the property. And another picture. Now it belongs to the navigators, who are using it as a Christian conference center and world headquarters for their training movement. At a mutual site on a bluff overlooking the Columbia River in Oregon stands an estate called Manuka. There's a view from the property. There's the building. This wonderful home covering almost an acre of ground was built by a wealthy businessman who had little interest in spiritual things. He entertained presidents of that home, but now it belongs to the Alliance Churches of Oregon. I, I can't vouch for what the status of those organizations is today, but at one time they were godly organizations. When Kohalat says, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise, he is not warning against true righteousness, but against self-righteousness or ostentatiousness in one's goodness. I don't think any of us have to be worried about being too righteous, as far as true righteousness is concerned. But he's warning against self-righteousness and putting on a show of righteousness. Neither is he warning against true wisdom, but against self-pride in one's intellectual achievements. As Bob has pointed out, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with using uh, intellectual study and academic study of, of the Word of God. Those are good things. But there is a problem when people become self-willed and pride, proud in their intellectual achievements. Called. I saw a chart years ago which showed some rather disconcerting things. And what this chart is showing is that as the level of education increases, people tend to become less accepting of, of the doctrines of the scripture. So we see that among Christians, those who just had a high school diploma, they all believe in God. Out of MDL, only 71% believe in God. And for people who had graduate, 
grad, Christians who have graduate degrees in general, only 63% believe in God. Did they really take Jesus? Well, at this point, 100% uh, of them believe in the divinity of Jesus. Those who had an MDL, 59%. Graduates, graduate degrees in general, 63%. Believe in biblical miracles, 96%, 54%, 37%. in in life beyond death, 100%, 82%, 53%. Believe in the virgin birth, 96%. 55%, 32%. So you can see how it goes that once people acquire man's knowledge, human knowledge, they tend to believe less and less in the spiral of the God. Echoing texts such as Proverbs 15, 16, uh, he, Kohalit, advises that a soft answer will accomplish more than will a grievous, than will a grievous words. This verse, verse extols the virtue of deference under difficult circumstances when the best response to anger is self-appraisement, pacifying the angry ruler. And I have a, a very good Example of that. This man is George Sada. He lives in the United States now, but at one time he lived in Iraq. And he lived in Iraq at the time that Saddam Hussein was ruling. He was in the Iraqi military, in the Iraqi Air Force. He retired from the military that Saddam Hussein called him back to be one of his advisors. How would you like that assignment? Being a Christian and being Saddam Hussein's advisor. Well, the, the reason that Saddam wanted this man is because most of his advisors were just yes men. They would just tell Saddam whatever, he wanted, whatever they thought Saddam wanted to hear. But Saddam knew that this man would tell him the truth. But how do you tell Saddam Hussein not to do something? Well, this is where that, where that principle comes in of uh, the soft answer. George discovered he discerned that in order to persuade Saddam not to do something, you had to show him that it was not in his best interest to do that. <laughs> because in Saddam's mind, everything revolves around him, of course. You know. Whatever going to help me, whatever going to make me look good, that's what I want to do. So Saddam wanted to attack Israel. He wanted to send his air force to bomb Israel. So George Sada knew that if he said, well, you can't attack Israel. They're the Jewish people, they're God's chosen people. You can't attack them. Well, that wouldn't carry any weight with Saddam. So what he did was 
He said, their planes, the Israeli planes, have much better radar than our planes. They will see our planes coming long before we see them. And they will shoot us down. They will shoot our planes down. And Iraq will be defeated. And it will look really bad amongst the other Arab nations. So it's not in your best interest to attack Israel. So he gave him a soft answer and persuaded Saddam not to attack Israel. The conclusion of the matter. The positive teaching in the book of Ecclesiastes is found in the last two verses of the book. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The book of Ecclesiastes then, which appears upon first reading to be subversive of orthodoxy, in reality supplements and supports the traditional biblical faith expressed in the law and the prophets and in the wisdom tradition. Father, we do thank you for the timeless insight that you have given us in the book of Ecclesiastes and how fruitless and empty life under the sun is. Life without knowledge of you without knowledge of the plans that you have made for eternity. We thank you for that you have included us in those plans. We are very appreciative of that. We thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Mm -hmm.